After sitting on a jury in a trial involving a double homicide in East Harlem, Ephraim Siegel wanted answers. He wanted to know more about the circumstances that led the young people involved to engage in a life of crime and violence. The killings took place in the courtyard of the East River Houses, a public housing complex located on 1st Avenue between 102nd Street and 105th Street in Manhattan. This was back in June of 2007. Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. Ephraim Siegel recounts his experience as a juror in the trial, and his subsequent examination of the link between poverty and violence in his book, Juror Number Two, The Story of Murder, The Agony of a Neighborhood. Ephraim, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you for having me. So had you served on a jury prior to this trial? No, this was the first time. Like many people, I've been called half a dozen times, and uh, I'm always excused. But but this time, I had a chance to be excused because we, we had 200 prospective jurors in a, in a courtroom, and the, and the first words out of the judge's mouth were, ladies and gentlemen, this is the most serious case you could be involved in. And he went on to summarize a double homicide, East River houses, 10 years ago, You'll 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 hear why it was why it's taken so long, and the case will take three and a half four weeks. And if any of you can't manage that because of the time, and then he added or anything else, raise your hand. Well, two thirds of the hands went up, but for some reason my hand did not. And when it got around to actually putting people in the jury box to question them, they they pulled out my card. I was the second card to be pulled out, and bang, I'm I'm juror number two. Why do you think that was for you? Why were you not so reluctant to go forward as a juror in a trial at that time? I've asked myself that. Uh, in the first couple of days, I wondered, what, what, what have I gotten myself into? But I was just, I was intrigued by the description of this, of this case. Honestly, I thought I could both learn something and contribute something as a juror. And because, because I'm a writer, I thought, well, just, just the experience of being on a jury in a murder trial is probably something that I could write about. So a mixture of all those motives. You say in the book that during the first five or six days of this trial, your view of the trial and what you were doing really changed. Why is that? What happened in the first five or six days? What happened was that uh, we jurors heard the testimony of first one eyewitness and then a second eyewitness. And in their direct testimony, the prosecution brought out their childhoods, which were very fraught with all kinds of problems, and their criminal records, the fact that they'd been arrested multiple times, the fact that they'd spent time in jail, the fact that they'd done bad things. And really, the the trial for me became not just the innocence or guilt of the accused, but what kind of a what kind of a neighborhood, what kind of a society, what kind of a family structure leads to this this kind of childhood and this kind of and this kind of behavior and outcome. So that that became a question that was always in my mind as I listened to the rest of the testimony and after the trial I was just I was just motivated to get some answers. Yeah, so take us back to the early morning hours of June 7th, 2007. What happened that led to this trial? There were 
three different drug selling crews involved. Two of them were based in East River houses. Uh, and the third was based across, across 105th Street in, in Wilson houses. Uh, the crew in Wilson houses were Crips and the two crews in, in East River houses were Bloods and Bloods and Crips always had a difficult, contentious, sometimes violent relationship. But in this particular, at this particular time, there'd been a truce between the, the main uh, Bloods crew in, in, in the courtyard of East River Houses and the Crips crew. And uh, the gang, the, the members of the two gangs were coexisting. And it happened that a dice game started up shortly after 4 a.m. and there were Bloods playing and there were Crips playing. And a little after 4.30, a man walked uh, back into the courtyard. He'd been there before with a semi-automatic pistol and started firing. His intended target was the leader of this uh, Crips crew. And uh, the man firing the shots apparently didn't know about the truth. Either he didn't know about the truth or he was so incensed that uh, members of the Crips were here in his territory, his courtyard. Uh, that he set out to shoot the, the leader of the Crips. That man got away, and uh, his his uh, bullets actually first struck uh, a fellow blood, and then when he realized what, what he'd done, he came back and, and executed at point-blank range by firing multiple shots the the other uh, member of the Crips who'd been rolling dice. So you had you had five men, five young men, Rolling dice, two were dead. One, the the Crips leader who got away actually was killed several years later uh, in a robbery. And you had the two eyewitnesses, and you had the perpetrator, a sixth person, and all of these lives were, three of the lives were gone. Young men were dead. Um, the two witnesses, one one will be in jail till his mid fifties. The other one had been in and out of jail and has to leave had to leave the city for his own protection after the trial. Uh, and then of course the perpetrator whom we evicted. So that's six six ruined lives. That's a pretty heavy toll. The defendant in the trial in which you were juror number two was Abraham Kakuda. What can you tell me about Abraham Kakuda and his background? Because the defense did not put him on the witness stand, there was no opportunity to get on the record his background. And we, as jurors, were constantly admonished by Judge Michael Obis not to look up anything about the trial, about about the crimes, not to visit the scene of the crimes, uh, not to talk to anybody. And so... We knew very little about Abraham Kakuda during the trial. We did, we did because of the testimony of one of the witnesses. We were aware that he'd been in jail at the same time as that witness. He'd actually befriended him. But other than that, we didn't know anything about, about his, his background. So it wasn't until afterwards when I began searching for information, uh, that I discovered that he was actually in federal prison in Pennsylvania. While the trial was going on, they had to transport him every single day in, in, you know, in handcuffs, shackles to the courtroom. We didn't see any, any handcuffs or shackles. He sat there in his uh, slacks and 
checkered shirt looking like any other citizen. Uh, and we knew very little about Abraham Kakuda except uh, what I was able to learn afterwards. Yeah, so what did you learn afterwards about his upbringing, about the circumstances of his life that potentially led him to this life as a gang member? I was unable to learn anything very specific about him. I would have liked to, I would have liked to talk to family members. I would have liked to talk to him. Uh, but, uh, I was unable to. I wrote him a letter, uh, after he was imprisoned for, for these, for these murders, offering to come and talk to him. I didn't say anything. I didn't even mention that I'd been a juror. I, I just said, oh, I'm writing something about, this trial, and I just would like to know some more about you, your background, and your family, and so on. Uh, no response to that. I tried to get in touch with his brother, who also lived in the area. Uh, with the help of one of the detectives, I was able to locate last known address. Went to that address, was told by a family living there, no, we don't know anything about him. Uh, so it was a dead end to try to find anything uh, firsthand to interview any either Abraham Kakuda or members of his family. All I know was that he'd been involved in a drug selling crew, uh, that he'd been incarcerated. I don't know how many times. Uh, and uh, what we knew was, was what we heard from the, from the mouths of two eyewitnesses about his behavior on the early morning of June 7th, 2007. That said, Ephraim, if you had the opportunity to pose questions to Abraham Kakuda, what would you say would be the primary questions you would want answered? Tell me about your family. Tell me about your parents. Tell me about your siblings. Tell me about your childhood. Where'd you go to school? Um, what did you do after school? What were you, I, you know, I would, I would have talked to him to the, to the extent that I could, as if I was talking to any young man who might be the subject of a story, and I wouldn't need to know his, his background. I wouldn't. I wouldn't mention the trial. Um, I would probably wait for him to bring it up. But anyway, that, <laughs> there was no opportunity to conduct that interview. The trial was held nearly ten years after the shootings took place. Why did it take so long to go to court? The reason it took so long is one of the reasons that the police have a great deal of difficulty identifying um, and bringing to justice the perpetrators of violent crimes in neighborhoods like East Harlem. The two eyewitnesses were both in Bloods crews. They had taken an oath as, as Bloods not, not to inform on any fellow Bloods member. So there was gang loyalty. On the one hand, there was gang loyalty. On the other hand, on the, on the other hand, there was very real fear of retribution because if you do agree to testify, not only are you in danger of, of, of some kind of revenge violence, but members of your family are subject to the same threats. And these things happen, uh, that, that witnesses are, uh, first of all, witnesses may be intimidated before a trial, but if they do testify, bad things can happen to them. So even though the two witnesses actually told the police that they'd witnessed the crime and who fired the shots, they and they absolutely refused to go on the record to testify to appear in court. Um, after a time, when both of them were in jail on other uh, in other cases, uh, they realized that if they testified, 
they could take advantage of what's known as a cooperation agreement where the prosecution offers them some reduction in sentence in these other cases in exchange for their signing a document that obligates them to tell every single thing about any criminal activity they've ever witnessed or been a part of, whether or not it's even ever led to an arrest or a trial. And that cooperation agreement was very important to the witness Gabriel Washington, right? He was a blood, but he was also facing murder charges in another case. That's right. He was facing uh, something called felony murder. He actually was not present when the shooting took place, when the killing took place, but he had he had hatched a plan to commit a robbery. And what happened was the robbery led to violence and, and a killing. Uh, and as an accomplice, he was he was charged with felony murder and could have been uh, subject to a sentence of, of 25 years to life. Uh, his cooperation agreement gave him 18 years, which I regard as a pretty harsh sentence, but it's not a life sentence, and I guess there's always some possibility of uh, parole before 18 years are up. So that was that was his deal. And the other eyewitness, uh, uh, Alejandro Alvarez, had actually served a, a couple of years in jail, close to what the minimum would have been in his case. It was not it was not a murder. It was, uh, I believe, a, a car ro- a robbery of a motor vehicle theft of a motor vehicle. Um, so in his case, he was actually going to be excused with time served. And part of his cooperation agreement was the, the, the DA's office would give him a sum of money enabling him to relocate out of New York City as a protection measure. Speaking about a sum of money, wasn't he also awarded $17,000 when he turned 18 as a result of a biking injury? He was. Uh, I think the sum was $18,000. He'd been a, a, a very troubled young man, uh, grew up in a family where his mother was a crack addict, uh, used to take him and the sibling into the, into the crack houses where the mother was uh, getting high, and she would give Alejandro a water pistol and say, oh, just sh- yeah, have fun, shoot this, shoot this pistol out the window. That was his mother. At some point, his father sent, sent the, the mother away, saying she was a bad influence. But the father worked in some office hours club and was often gone for an entire weekend or more. At the time, Alejandro was six years old, and his father would leave him in charge of two younger siblings and and some food and give him the paper food stamps. In those days, they were they were pieces of paper, not the debit cards like today. And say, okay, if the if the food runs out, you go to the bodega and buy more. So you've got a six-year-old supervising two younger siblings, sometimes for 72 hours or more. Uh, that that was the basis of his childhood. Uh, he was uh, he was very overweight. He was not athletic. He was not someone who fought back. He was constantly bullied and attacked by other kids. Uh, even by the early elementary grades, he was running away from home. He'd stay out all night. He'd sleep on subways. He'd rob tourists. A lot of bad things happened to him. Um, and at one, at some point, uh, in one of his trials, he was offered, uh, he was offered the opportunity to enlist in the army in exchange for, for dropping felony charges against him. And he agreed to that. And he'd been, and he passed the, the mental test for the army, but he was overweight. And so, uh, he was told, 
listen, if you if you lose weight and get into shape, uh, we'll induct you into the army. And in the process of that, all of a sudden, he turned 18, this money came along, and all thoughts of army service went out of his head because he thought he could buy clothes, look presentable, and that would make him popular with the same group of young people who had bullied and bullied and mistreated him before. What about the other witness, Gabriel Washington? How tragic was his background? Gabriel grew up in uh, Wilson Houses across the street from East River Houses. And when he was 12, both his parents died within a few months of each other. And so suddenly he was an orphan. Uh, he was living with a grandmother. Uh, but he was soon thereafter tempted into selling drugs. And in fact, his good buddy was uh, Manuel Sabater, one of the one of the two victims. Manuel was a couple of years older than Gabriel, and Gabriel would be cutting school, hanging around outside school, not going in. And Manuel said, "Oh, come come with me. Let's sell some drugs. You can make some money." That was the start. That was the start of his criminal career at age 12. One thing led to another. He was arrested. He was sent to juvenile detention. He escaped from juvenile detention by running away, went back to East River Houses, went back to selling drugs. That's led to more arrests. This led to more incarceration. Uh, when I sat there listening to his story, it sounded like a train wreck that was going to happen, but he had no way of getting off the train. Just, just one, one stop after another that eventually led to disaster. Now, of course, both of these individuals were born into very unfortunate circumstances. But what, in your opinion, are the other areas in which things failed them, the system failed them? After the trial, I, I concentrated my research on three different um, social institutions. One was housing. That's NYCHA, the New York City Housing Authority. Uh, the second was the criminal justice system, which is not, which is the police, of course, but it's also this, the the system of juvenile detention, it's the system of parole, it's the system of supervision, it's how sentences get handed out, uh, criminal justice system. And the third, which I thought, which I came to think was the most important, was the education system, because East Harlem, unfortunately, uh, has a lot of failing schools, and too many children leave school or, quote, graduate, allow, they're allowed to graduate. But they don't have this. They don't have the skills in uh, in English, in reading, in arithmetic to really function in the modern economy. And so, joining gangs and selling drugs was one a measure of personal protection because the gang is protection, and two, it's an opportunity to earn money, sometimes big money. What schools did you find that are doing things right, that are making an impact in helping to turn the lives around of troubled youth? There's a school uh, in East Harlem, PS 171, Patrick Henry. It's, it's a elementary and middle school, so it goes actually now preschool through, through eighth grade. And it has a very exceptional principal named uh, Demetrius Pantelides. Himself, uh, the product of an immigrant family, is his parents came from Greece. Uh, he was born here. He was a very serious student. He went all the way through the school system, went to college, 
got a master's degree, and devoted himself to education. And the principal, Demetrius Pantelides, has really a, a single-minded dedication to his goal, which is that every child should succeed. That it, It's not good enough if half the kids are reading at grade level and half the kids are doing uh, math at a proficient level. He wants 100%. And, and he told me over and over again, anything less than 100% is not good enough. Uh, so that's, that's one principle. Um, I visited a charter school in the Success Academy network called Success Academy Harlem 3. It follows the Success Academy model, which is a great deal of structure. Uh, children who are expected to pay attention at all times by tracking the teacher or whoever is talking with their eyes, uh, to do their homework, to, to be encouraged and supported at every step by their parents. Uh, children who are accepted into a Success Academy school do so with the parents' understanding that they are responsible as to be partners in their children's learning. And in fact, in the early education grades, those parents have to commit to reading aloud to their children five or six books a week. So there's a very serious partnership between the, the, the Success Academy schools and the family of, of the children in it. Another very successful school is a, is a small high school, Central Park East High School. Principal of Central Park East High School is Bennett Lieberman, took over a failing school in 2003 with a very low graduation rate, and over a period of several years was able to assemble the teaching staff that shared his dedication, shared his goal that, that this group of students who were mostly minority, heavily uh, Latino and black, that they that they would succeed, that they would graduate, they would have that they would have the opportunity to go to a four year college or a two year college, whatever, whatever wherever their inclination and goals took them. So, bottom line is that these principals need support. They need support from the Department of Education, from the city. They need support from the Department of Education, and and even more, um, they need the people at the top to focus on what's really important. It, it's it's very easy for the mayor and the chancellor to announce grandiose reform programs uh, shortly after de Blasio was elected in 2013. He announced with great fanfare the uh, school reform program, the school renewal program, and, and all of a sudden they were going to take 95 of the worst schools in the city and turn them around. Well, that's not the way to do it. The way to do it is to find principles like Demetrius Pantelides, and emulate their success and look look for other people who have those same qualities. So I say forget the search that happens every three or four years for, for a new chancellor, as if the chancellor by himself is going to, or herself, is going to turn around the school system. Uh, and so you look for uh, some miracle worker from out of town who's done it in Houston or San Francisco and, and is going to do it in New York. No. Look for the principals on the ground who are succeeding and emulate what they're doing and support them and bet on success. Don't bet on failure. Let's put our money where uh, where we know that th there are people to make it work. I, I, I advocate doing a search not for the chancellor, but for 25 exceptional principals every year. Let's find 25 of them around the country. Bring them to New York. Give them the freedom 
to organize their schools. And, but, you know, by the end of four or five years, we could have a cadre of 100 schools that used to be failing that are on their way to success. It, it takes three to five years to turn around one of these schools. And the average tenure of a, of a chancellor in New York City is barely three years. So what's the best way to change the school system? It's, it's, it's at the principal level. What are among the nonprofit groups you found to be making strides to help prevent the cycle of violence in communities? I found an organization called SAVE, which stands for Save Against, Stand Against Violence East Harlem. Uh, the way I found them was by attending a community council meeting at the Precinct 23, which is in the area of East River Houses. Every, every police precinct has a monthly meeting at which anybody can show up, ask questions, confront the commanding officer, uh, uh, explain their gripes or problems with the police. And at these meetings, they often invite members of community groups to give uh, a brief a brief summary of what, what these groups are doing. So I heard <clears throat> a young man from SAVE describe what they were doing, and I wanted to learn more. And I went to visit them in their offices, Turns out that they're actually, they're under the auspices of a nonprofit called Getting Out and Staying Out. Getting Out and Staying Out has a mission of working with young men incarcerated at Rikers Island and then, and working with them when they're released from Rikers Island, putting them through an intensive two week orientation program. And for those who completed successfully, these are young men of 19, 20, 21, even 18 years old, um, who haven't held a, who haven't held a job. Maybe they've finished high school. Maybe they haven't. But if they're serious about wanting to change their lives and they're given a great deal of emotional and educational and financial support, they're guaranteed to have a paid internship over several months. And that can lead to a full-time job. That can lead to, to opportunities. Some of these young men finish their, get their high school diploma on the premises of getting out and staying out. And it, it, it's, a, it's a highly successful program. And they were awarded this uh, uh, contract from the mayor's office uh, on criminal violence to manage SAVE, Stand Against Violence East Harlem, and SAVE operates just operates just in two NYCHA housing projects in East Harlem, uh, Johnson Houses and Jefferson Houses, and they have a, a crew of outreach workers, three or four of them, who are in constant contact with the target population, which is young men ages 18 to 24. Some of them have engaged in violence. Some of them have been in jail. They are at risk to commit shootings and killings. And robberies and, and other, and other bad crimes. And there, and the, and the mission of SAVE is to interrupt and prevent that violence by, by talking to these young men and explaining the ri the risks to them, the risks to their family of doing the wrong things. And these outreach workers are young men who've, who've lived there. They, they've been there. They've done that. They've done bad things. They've been in jail, and they know what they're talking about, and that gives them a kind of instant credibility. While I was reading your book, Ephraim, I had this thought about jurors themselves. And jurors are exposed to sometimes very, very horrific incidents, and they have to go through all of those details. And 
you know, I'm sure when you write about it too, it's cathartic in a way, but is enough done for jurors to check on their own mental health when having to sit on juries and sort of absorb all of this violence and tragic information? Does it stay with you afterwards? It certainly stayed with me afterwards. Seeing those autopsy photos, seeing the photos of the, of the crime scene, the day of the crimes when the, when the police showed up and had their crime investigators taking pictures, seeing the amount of blood, uh, in the courtyard, uh, it looked like the whole contents of a can of paint had just been overturned and spilled red paint on the, on the courtyard stones. That has an effect. And I, and I think there were a couple of jurors who, their attitude was, this perpetrator is guilty. We put him away. You know, that, that's the solution. Lock these people up, you know, and, and so on. We've done our job and, and, uh, and our job is to convict and, and put this guy away. You know, I, I just thought our job was to, to do that. Yes, but to understand and bring some understanding to this, to the social problems that, that we confronted and to, to talk about them. Well, the book is Juror Number Two, The Story of a Murder, The Agony of a Neighborhood. Ephraim Siegel, thank you so much for taking the time. Okay, George, just to mention, uh, the, the book is available from thewriterspress.com and, uh, or, or from ephraimsiegel.com, either one. And uh, very much enjoyed being here. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Our producer is Maddie Bristow. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.